0: Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Now, I, I'm going to give you just kind of a warning this morning. You know, you're, you're so blessed because you're the second service, and uh, when I crash and burn in the first, I can try to make some adjustments. Um, with that said, I want to encourage some of you to come see me crash and burn in the first service uh, because we're outgrowing the second service, all right? We've got some room. If you can do that, and that would be good for you and your family, uh, please, uh, please, please. Uh, we, we love that you're here, don't, don't get me wrong, but we need to uh, try to fill up that first uh, service. Um, uh, let me just say just a couple of things. You know, we are, as we've already mentioned, we're in our, uh, hopefully we are living simply so that others might simply live, right? <laughs> just so disappointing. All right. um, what we're doing, as we're doing this, I, again, we're doing this for what? What we call the glory of God, for the propagation of the gospel to hear locally and around the world so that people will hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And they would turn and they would be, quit being idol worshipers and they would become God worshipers. That's what we're doing, what we're doing. We'll talk about more of that this week, next week. But what I want to do is uh, over the four weeks that we meet together in corporate worship as a faith family, uh, what we're going to begin to do is I, I want to really begin to create kind of a build a framework for you. And that framework uh, is going to consist of four primary themes. And I wanna give those themes to you just very quickly. The first theme that we'll be covering this morning is God's purpose. The next week we'll talk about God's plan. Then we'll talk about God's provision. And then finally, God's passion. What you're going to find is each of these are going to be building on each other and you're going to begin really this theology of missions and theology of God's glory and you're going to get a better grip, hopefully, to understand why we're doing what we're doing, why we're sacrificing, why we're giving up in order to be able to make this effort to make God's name great amongst the nations. And so uh, those are the things are going to be. But what I really pray is this, and this has been my prayer, knowing that this month was coming, is that we'll not only leave with a better understanding, but we'll leave this month with a greater God-given conviction that literally makes a transformation in our lives and makes us live in light of the truth that we're about to learn. That's what we want. That's what we're praying for. And so this morning we find we're really going to be focusing at this first theme, God's purpose. God's purpose for God's purpose ultimately is going to demonstrate what our purpose, your purpose, and my purpose is going to be. And this morning we find ourselves in John chapter 4. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read part of the story this week, and then we're going to finish up with it, the second half of it next week. But John 4 is a, is a pretty common uh, story. Many of you know about it. Um, the story, chapter 4, actually begins with uh, Jesus and his disciples. They're uh, leaving uh, Judea, and they want to make it to Galilee. And there are two primary ways to make this work, Uh, two different paths they can take. They can either take the direct path, which would take them right through Samaria, or they would take, which was really the, the, the Jews' common path, which would be to go all the way around Samaria in order to be able to get to Galilee. Well, here in the Word of God, we find out that Jesus chooses not to take the common path, but instead, he chooses to go straight through the heart of Samaria, And in fact, in chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says that he had to pass through Samaria. And the reason for this, we find out very soon, is because God had a divine appointment for him with a lady who was a Samaritan woman that he would meet at a well, and he would engage her in a conversation. And it's interesting because you need to understand something. When he engages her in this conversation, he basically is breaking every kind of cultural bias and prejudice of the day. And the reason is, is, first of all, men and women usually didn't communicate in public to, with each other, especially with somebody that was not their spouse. Secondly, it was between a Jew and a Samaritan. And, and here's the deal they hated each other. And the Samaritans, or the, the Jews, viewed the Samaritans as half breeds, as unclean, as really just subhuman beings. In fact, the reason that they took that long path around and wouldn't go through is because they go through Samaria is because they wouldn't didn't want to contaminate themselves and cause them to be unclean by having Samaritan dust on the bottom of their shoe, which would cause them to be unclean to come and worship their one true God. They loathed the Samaritans. And not only that, but he was a very revered rabbi. He was a teacher of the law, and people looked at him, and he was a holy man. And this woman, by all accounts, by everybody's viewpoint in the whole town in which she lived, was a sinner. She had been married five times, and she was now living with a man that was not her husband. And so when Jesus engages this woman, he is really just stripping away all these cultural rules and regulations for the day. And when he begins to talk with her, at first she's very cold, but then she begins to warm up to him as he begins to speak words to her heart. And she begins to come to understand that the one that she's speaking to right now, this is no ordinary man. This, is the one, this very well could be the true Messiah that had been promised all the way from the Old Testament. And so at this point, as he's talking with this woman, something happens. His disciples come back from a local town. They had gone off to get some food, and now they're coming back with that food. And when they see Jesus with this woman in verse 27, it says that they marveled that he was talking with this woman for all the reasons I had mentioned earlier. And, 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 but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? And then at that moment, as, as, as they begin to think these things, the woman leaves, she goes back to her own town, and as soon as she does, she begins to witness. In verse 29, she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did, can this be the Christ? And then notice in verse 30, they went out of the town and they were coming to him. So this huge group of Samaritans are now making their way towards Jesus Christ outside of this town. And at this point, Jesus begins to have a conversation with his disciples. And they begin to speak. And in verse 31, it says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not Know about and so the bible says at this point they were kind of confused And they begin to ask among themselves and begin to wonder among themselves Who is it uh, that gave him something to eat because the whole purpose of going to town in the first place Is because jesus didn't have something to eat now They've made this trip and they know he couldn't have gotten any food from the samaritans because the samaritans aren't going to give him Any food a jew of food. So he went off to the town. He ends up coming back when they come back He says i've got food that you know nothing of Now what Jesus is doing is he is taking this event for them to teach them a life transforming lesson. And he has placed this in the word of God for you and I today to give us a life transforming lesson. To take your eyes and my eyes and their eyes and take them off the physical things in this world and to place them directly on a spiritual truth that you and I must know, that they must know and come to grips for with and be a reality and, and understand the reality of it. Now, when Jesus quotes this, a lot of scholars believe when he says, I have food that you don't know anything about, they believe that in fact, what he's doing is he is quoting Moses from the book of Deuteronomy chapter eight and verse three. And because the reason for that is because Jesus, in Deuteronomy, Moses begins to instruct the people. He begins to remind them that God had rescued them out of captivity. And when he rescued them out, if you remember, as they begin to wander, they begin to get really hungry. And when they got hungry, do you remember what they used to do? Grumble and complain, just like you and I do. I'm hungry, right? And, uh, and we begin to grumble and complain, and they used to shout out, why didn't, why didn't you just leave us back in Egypt? We were enslaved, but at least we had plenty of food. Did you bring us out here to starve and to die. And at that particular point, he begins to remind them of that. And then we know how God supplied for them. He supplied from them manna, manna from heaven for them to feed and be satisfied on. And so Moses is, is reminding them of this. And he says, he, he said, Moses said to them, he humbled you speaking of God, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. Do you see that? He says, he gave you food that you did not know of, Now, Jesus is saying in this passage, I have food that you do not know of. You see that? That's why the connection is there. Now, he goes on to say, Moses does, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, that should sound familiar to many of you if you're familiar with your Bibles. Because Jesus quoted that same thing again in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. When Jesus had gone into the wilderness at the beginning of his public ministry, he was in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he fasted. He did not eat, nor did he drink. And during that time, the devil came to, to do what? To try to tempt him, to, to sin. And the verse, one of the verses that he quotes is this verse in Deuteronomy 8. He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we know that this verse is important, and it's an important lesson. What was Jesus ultimately trying to teach them, and what is he teaching us? Jesus was saying to his disciples, man, food is good. In fact, it's one of the best things in this world that it has to offer. And, and, and the food that we have, man, it nourishes us, it sustains our life, it satisfies us, unlike, unlike almost anything else in this world can ultimately do. And if you've ever gone, guys, if you've ever gone a long time without food, you know, just like the Jews uh, back in the Old Testament, the Israelites, that, it, that, that for them, you begin to crave like crazy, and you can't get it off your mind, and with your greatest, you're just transfixed on the idea, I need to have food. You ever been there, right? And so he says, he says but I want to tell you, there's a food that I have that you know nothing about. He says, in other words, there is something in this world that I consider food that nourishes my soul, sustains my life, and satisfies me in a way that is, that is in a superior way to the regular food that you're offering me right now. There's something far greater than that. And he, then he reveals what it is. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. He says, guys, what fully and completely satisfies me, what really gets me up in the morning, truly what makes life worth living, what brings me the greatest joy and satisfaction and is like new marrow to my bones is just to do what God has called me to do. He makes the statement, in essence, true living is doing the will of God. Now you stop and think about that for a minute. That message of Jesus Christ is completely contrary to what your flesh and my flesh say and what the world is trying to teach us. Jesus says the way to true joy is in submission to the Father to do what he's called us to do, and the world and the flesh says, no, it's not. The way for true joy and the way for true happiness and the way for true significance and fulfillment is to rebel against the commands of God. If you want to be happy, be your own person don 't let anybody or any God tell you what to do. you leave you live a life fancy free live and let live man, to each his own. For the world, they would say any kind of regulation or command that would restrain them to keep the things that they ultimately want them to do want, that ultimately want to do, that is just a cosmic killjoy. So this strikes against what the world teaches, and this strikes against what your and my flesh desire. Are, are you all with me? Not only in the world, but my flesh, my flesh will sit there oftentimes and say, "Do this, get this, grab this, disobey God 's command. that's where happiness is. But Jesus says, man, if you want to live where true living is, true joy is, it's doing what God has called us to do. In fact, when Jesus comes in John 6, 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven, just to make sure we understand what he was there for, not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent me. Now, here's a huge question. What was the will of Jesus Christ? What was God's will for his son's life? What was he sent there to be able to do? Well, to answer that question, it's best for us not to speculate, but let Jesus answer that for us. Now, let me say something real quick. You're going to see a bunch of different verses up there. If you try to look up all these verses, you will break your hand in your your neck, okay? So just read them up there, okay? You could go back later. We're going to put these notes on on the Internet for you to go back and glean over, all right? And eat and feast and think upon. Okay, no, all all right. So... This is what Jesus says in John six thirty nine through 40. He says why he came. He says, for this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise up in the last day. He says, for this is the will of my father. Here it is, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. He says the, the, the will of God for Jesus' life that he was sent to do was to reconcile a holy God with sinful man by becoming a sinful substitute, actually a pure substitute that would become sinful in order to be able to reconcile our relationship with God once again. That was the will of his life, to give, him, to, to give his life so that we would gain life Unto God, are y'all with me on that? And so, so that's why it makes sense when He says these things, John twelve thirty two. And I, when I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. Are you familiar with that verse? You know where we normally hear it is like, like theologically challenged worship leaders, right? They get up and they they're strumming their guitar. Uh, Nothing against our strumming the guitar, worship leader. He's not listening good. And what they do is they say stuff like this Listen, the Bible says that if he be lifted up, he'll draw all men into me. And everyone's like, Ooh, lift him up. Woo, lift him up. But in context, what is it saying in the Word of God? Jesus is saying, If I be lifted up and nailed to a cross and die butchered like a lamb on a cross, he says, I will make it possible to draw all men into me under the Father and restore their relationship with him. And he says, And it is that that fulfills me. Now, it's important to understand something. It's important for you to understand, you and I to understand that Jesus going to the cross and doing the will of the Father was not, listen to this, was not an end into itself, but was a means to the end. Now, I'm going to explain that to you. For some people doing the will of God, some, quote, believers doing the will of God, maybe for you today, the the reason you're here is because the end into itself is for you to do all the right things that are in the word of God. And I guarantee that you're a miserable individual. You sit back and you go, man, I'm just gonna do everything that God tells me to do, and that's it. It's all about just doing the right thing. And you are just a, a, a cantankerous curmudgeon. I mean, you just sit back and you just tell everybody, you need to do this and you need to do that, and this is what we need to do. You've seen this, right? And what happens is they're doing, quote, at least outwardly, all the acts of the will of God, but they're miserable and there's no joy inside of their life. Some people do the will of God, however, as a means to the end. But the problem is, It's the wrong end. What they do is they go, I'm going to do the will of God so that I can be happy. I'm going to do the will of God because if I do the will of God, then God owes me something. If I do everything he tells me to do, then he's got to do what I ask him to do. He needs to protect me from diseases. He needs to protect my family. He needs to save my children. He needs to, all these kinds of things. And so, do you see what I'm saying? And, and again, those folks become miserable because when God doesn't do what they deserve God to do because they've been doing all that God's called them to do, did you, did you follow that? All right, then they become angry and upset. And then they say things like this. I, tr- I tried the whole God church thing before. It just doesn't, what, work. For Jesus, the will of God was not an end unto itself. It was a means to an end. Why did he love to do the will of God? John seventeen four tells us. He said, I glorified you on earth as he's praying to God, having accomplished the work that you gave to me. He says, I do the will of the Father for one reason and one reason only. Here's the greatest reason. Because God is glorified when I do it. I do it and God is glorified. Now let me stop for a second here because I think that this is where we sit there and all of a sudden you guys are gonna start going into a trance in just a second because you're gonna sit there, and, yeah, glorified. You, some of you are already in that trance. Let me try to get you out of it, okay? Glorified, glorified. And you keep saying that word and you're like, okay, glorify him in all things. And we, we're, there's such a familiarity with that word, but I'm not so sure that we've ever been gripped by that word. And so what does it mean when Jesus was glorifying and seeking to glorify God? What exactly does that mean or did it mean? It meant this. It means that God is recognized and cherished as supremely valuable over everything else and always respond according to that truth, okay? In other words, what we do is when we glorify God, what we're saying is, God, we're surrounded by really wonderful, great, awesome, really good stuff on this earth. But God, compared to you, it is dung. God, you are far more wonderful, far more valuable to me than temporal happiness, than temporal riches, than temporal anything. You are above all things. You are far more valuable, more wondrous. And then what we do is we don't just say it, we live it. We live it through the obedience of God. We demonstrate his great value and his great worth. Are y'all tracking with me? You guys with me? Okay. And so he says a great value and great worth. Now here's the question. Why? Why did he do Uh, Why? So for him, living again was doing the will of God for the glory of God. But why was he so passionate about the glory of God? Because here's why. Because everything God has ever done, and everything God is doing right now, as the words of uh, my words are coming out of my mouth, and everything that God will ever do for all eternity will be for His glory. He will do it to demonstrate. His insurmountable worth and supreme value over all things and over everyone. He will do all things for that purpose. Everything he's done, he's done for those things. And and the word of God backs this up. I'm not just making this up. If you actually read carefully through the word of God, it's everywhere. He says says here in, in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 6 that God chose the people, his people, for his glory, to show his great worth, to display his great value amongst everything else. Listen to what he says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to, now notice, the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. If you're saved today, he chose you today. And if you're not, you say, how do I know I'm chosen or not? Repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and he chose you before the foundations of the earth. And why did he do it? For his glory. Because when He surrounded around that throne on that day, everyone's going to be looking around going, dude, I don't deserve to be here, do you? No. Why are we here? Was it because of the good things we did, because of our church attendance? No. We sit there and say, behold the Lamb of God. And so he goes on. He says, God sanctify, sanctifies his, his people for his glory. Isaiah 49, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, he goes, I defer my anger for the sake of what? My praise. My praise. The reason I don't wipe you out is because of my praise. He says, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, and it should say, but as silver. And he says, and I have tried you in the furnace of affliction... For my name's sake, another way way of saying for me and for my glory, for my own sake, I do it for how should my name be profaned? And he says, my glory I will not give to another. He says, I'm not sharing it with anybody. It's mine. It's mine. Again, uh, number three, I'll I'll, I'll quickly go. He set Israel apart for the use for his glory. Isaiah 49.3, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Are are you seeing a theme here? Okay? He's acting, but what is he saying? I'm acting for my what? To demonstrate my supreme value over everything else. And then he says in the next, God rescued his people from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106, 7 through 8, for our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved us for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God answers prayer for his glory. You're sitting there and go. I thought it was just for our own good. I just thought it was because because we had so much faith. No, he says for his glory. John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then notice this verse in the six. God sent His Son to suffer for His glory. John twelve twenty seven through twenty eight. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour, Father. Glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I don't know how you get much more clear than this. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I will do all things to demonstrate my supreme worth over all this stuff and over everyone. Answer a question. This is the question. If God has done all for his glory, if he is doing everything, and he's not doing one thing in this service, he's doing a billion things in this service, and everything that he will continue to do for the future, until for all eternity, if he does it all for his glory, then question, why did God create you? What's your purpose for God's glory? Just in case you were wondering, does it say that explicitly? Isaiah 43, 6b through 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Any sons and daughters of God? And he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my what? Glory. For my glory. So let, so some of us who are a little bit slower, like myself, let me lay this out for you. Our purpose. Every minute of every day, And in every way, we are created to live a life that demonstrates the supreme value of God above all things. Our problem, we did not. And the truth of the matter is, we do not. When we begin to understand this, we begin to understand very common passages of Scripture that we've heard and we can cite and quote, and we just kind of throw them out like they're absolutely nothing. But all of a sudden, some of these verses that we know so well, all of a sudden to bring even a greater depth of satisfaction and understanding, passages like Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Understanding why we are created, all of a sudden that verse really begins to make sense, does it not? What he's saying is all of us have failed to value God above all things. We have failed to exalt him above all things. That's what it means by all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. And why have we done that? He answers that in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, because none is righteous, no, not one. Now, what does that mean? Well, God is righteous, we are not, right? And so what the Bible says is when it says that God is righteous, he's righteous because he is able to identify and to exalt that which is infinitely valuable. He recognizes it. That's why he's righteous. Did you you get that? Unrighteousness, means that we are unrighteous, means that we are incapable, incapable of truly, apart from Christ, incapable of valuing that which is infinitely valuable. Do do y'all get that? Okay, let me back up because this is where some of you are going, what's going on? My head's coming off. Back up. There are none righteous, no, not one. Only God is righteous. Here's the deal. What does righteousness really refer to? It says that that person has the ability to recognize that which is infinitely valuable. God is righteous. You and I, not righteous. You and I, before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, of our own self, no righteousness, because we cannot, we have failed to recognize that which is infinitely worthy and valuable. And as unbelievers, before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot see the infinite worth of God. You're blinded by your sin. Does that make sense? Now notice this. So then what we find is this. Then Romans 1.23 begins to make more sense. Keep tracking with me. In Romans 1:23 says we we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. what, what is he saying? He's saying we did not recognize God for the value in the worth, supreme worth that he was. Because we were unrighteous and we were blinded to it, our sin blinded to it, uh, us to it. Instead what we did was we found supreme value and worth in the created things made by hands. Instead of worshiping a worthy God, instead we have worshipped cars, boats, homes, IRAs, ATVs, SUVs, whatever else you want to throw on there, those created things by hands are the things that you and I in our sin chose to find is valuable. You guys with me? Now here's a question. What then is our just reward for doing so? What's our just reward for not living out the purpose that God has called us to? To not value Him above all else. What do we deserve as a creation who has rebelled against their very purposes? Death. Death. This is seen, I think, in a very clear passage in Acts chapter 12. There in Acts chapter 12, this is what, the, uh, what we find is, uh, we find Herod, the king, who comes out, and, and many people say that he was basically in an amphitheater. And as he comes out, he's got all this royal garb. And he comes out in front of the people, and some scholars say that at that time as he's speaking, I don't know how they know this, I'm just saying some some do and some don't. As he comes through and as he's speaking, he's got this royal garb on. The sun is behind him illuminating these royal garbs. And all of a sudden, the people all over that place begin to shout out the voice of a God and not of man as he begins to speak. And the scriptures doesn't say this, but we understand by what happens, this is what he's doing. Herod sits out there in all his glory and he's doing this. Yeah. It's all about me, man. This is good. He's rebelling against God. He's not doing what he was created for. What is he? What what is? What is his just reward? The Bible says in the very next verse, in the very next sentence, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Then again, another very familiar passage comes alive to us, Romans chapter six, verse twenty-three it says there, it says, the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence, both physical and spiritual death. Now, here's another, another observation. The truth of the matter is, guys, is we are in absolutely, before we come to faith in Christ, we're in absolutely hopeless situation. We've rebelled against God. We have not valued him and done, follow me, not done what God has called us to do, but here's why it's even worse off. Here's why it's even more difficult because before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're incapable of doing it. God will never look valuable. God will never look wonderful. Jesus will never look great. My car will always be greater than him. My house will always be greater than him. I'm blinded to it. So our only hope is what? Jesus. This is why the scriptures teach us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 25, 21, it says, For our sake he made him who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become his, the righteousness of God. So what that means is when he saves us, when he calls us out and he saves us, he makes us righteous now, track with me, what are we able to do when we become righteous? What is it? We're able to see his what? His worth and his value. No wonder Jesus said that he came to give sight to the blind. When before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we can't live out our purpose for our life because we can't, we can't ascribe supreme value and worth to him because we can't see it. He doesn't look glorious to us. But when Jesus comes and 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 takes his righteousness and makes us righteous, now we see he's glorious. He's wonderful. He's incredible. He's so much greater than anything we could ever hope for or live for. Then all of a sudden, that, that old hymn becomes alive to us, doesn't it? Then the things of this world grow strangely dim and the light of his glory and grace. No wonder Zacchaeus said, man, I live for money, but when I saw Jesus, I'll sell it all, man. I'll give it all back and then some. How in the world could a man who loved and lived for money do such a thing? Because he saw something far more glorious. And let me just add this. That's why 1 John says if you're not living like a believer of Jesus Christ in pursuit of him, you haven't seen him. You haven't seen him. You haven't seen his glory. You haven't seen his beauty. Right? Now, within that, you and I struggle every day. Yes? Fight every day. But here's the one thing for everybody who's been saved. One thing I could tell you, you've seen and tasted how glorious he is, how wonderful he is. You know he's greater than anything else. Are you with me? Now, here's our application. Paul then says, now that you've been converted, now do what God's called you to do, what you were created for, because you're able to. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, how does that bring glory to God? Well, like this. Now, I like food, and so do you. Remember, I can see some of you. Just kidding. All right, all right. Trying to loosen it up just a little bit. All right. I love food. You love food. Our culture worships food. Yes. You know, my, my um, there's a there, there's a missionary that I know in Honduras, and the lady said to me one time, she goes, "What is it with you Americans and food? Every 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 commercial is about food." He goes, "You guys love food," and I, and I had to say, "Yes, that's true. We do love food. We love it." And so let's just say, for example, that the world says. We love food, and the way that we love food is to demonstrate we love food and to put a restaurant everywhere at all times and to have our own food religious network for food. And that what we're going to do is we're going to talk food, look food, eat food. We're going to do everything food, try to smell food. We're going to show you how what you can do with food. You can show what you don't do with food. We're going to show you everything about food. So in your mind and my mind, do we see as the world that we see food as being good? Yes. And so even as believers, we say, yes, that is good. But then we say as believers in Christ, but wait a minute, wait a minute, we have to draw some parameters around food. And the world sits there and says, no parameters, food. You said, yes, food, good, parameters. And they say, no, no parameters. This is it. Listen, my life is food. Life is worth living because of food. Food is awesome. And we sit there and say, yes, food is good. But God commands us not to be gluttons of the food, to eat what we need. That's why he created it, because what is God-given must also be God-governed. And they're sitting there scratching their head and saying, but it's good, why would you ever resist absolutely taking all of it that you can? It will make you happy. And you sit there and say, because food is good, but God is infinitely greater. The same thing with, with, with sexual relations. sit there and God has created sex and God says that it's a good thing between a husband and a wife within marriage. The world sits there and says, listen, sex in and of itself is what will make you most joyous So because it will make you much joyous, there should be no restraints because nothing should hinder you from bliss and happiness. So go at it with everything that you possibly can. Try to get it and get as much of it as you possibly can. Don't don't be denied in it. And the Christian comes along and they get angry because we sit there and say, yes, sex is good, but God has told us that what is God-given must also be God-governed. And we must make sure that we do it within the confines of a marriage that God has set apart for us. Why does he do that? He, 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 he tells us to do that. Why? So that we will not commit the sins of fornication and adultery against our God. We want to do the will of God. Why? Because sex is good, but God is far greater. God is far greater. One more time. Can you stick with me one more time? Material things. The world says all these things, this is worth living. Man, you could really demonstrate your worth and your value in your place in life if you have this truck, if you have this boat. Now, I'm saying this, but I know in your heart, every single one of us are as guilty as a dog in this place for this. We've bought into that lie. Man, that will bring happiness. That's fantastic. That's what I ultimately want. If I could just get that thing, that would be awesome. The believer sits back and says, listen, God gave us money. And God did give us money to meet our needs, but he also gave us money to be a blessing, to bless those and to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And so what we do is we take a portion of our money every week and we give it to God. And then what we do is other times for offerings, we try to even take more money and we give it to God and we give it to his glory and we give it to missions and we do all these things. And they sit there and go, but money is what makes you happy. Why would you give it away? Why would you shorten all of that? Again, say it with me, because we say money is good, but God is God is greater. When we are obedient to God and say no to the things of this world that the world finds most valuable, God is glorified because we say that God is most valuable, over all things. If you're familiar with John Piper's writings, this is his famous statement. He says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Now, what that means is this. What this means, now listen to me very carefully. We love stuff and we love ourselves. And what we love, we love to buy stuff for ourselves. And man, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you're like me, but man, I'll get my mind transfixed on something. And I'll start thinking about it. And I'll start researching it. And I'll sit there and start asking people, hey, you got one of these things? What is it like? Well, it's like this and it's like that. And I'm like, man, one of these days I'm gonna get me one of those. I'm gonna scrunch money and get as much money as I possibly can to be able to buy one of those bad boys because I'll tell you what, man, that's where it's at. And so what we do is we sit there and we do all that stuff and we give it to that one thing, and you get it, and you finally get it in all of your thoughts for three weeks all of your efforts for th- three weeks, all of your time was spent getting this thing and all of your affections were reserved for this thing, congratulations, you just worship that thing. I just worship that thing. If I spend more time valuing something and loving something and cherishing something and striving for something more than I do for the glory of God, I have worshipped the creation and not the creator. But when a lost and dying world sees that we don't have some things, maybe here or there, just because of your own choice not to do it, I'm not saying, listen, let's be very, very careful. I'm not preaching against buying stuff. Do, do y'all hear me? Let's be very clear. Hey man, do you want this or that or whatever? Because look, I can't get away from everything. I can't get away with anything. I buy a car and, and Katie bar the door. You know, it, it's, ooh, look at the preacher buying a new car, right? You know, I pull up in my Civic, you know, and you've got your Corvette, and you sit there, ooh, I guess we're paying you good, aren't you? Right? I mean, look, I know it, right? And I'm not saying it was nice to smell a new car smell. It's nice. But when we sit there for the world and sit there and say, man, I could have that, and I could do that, but I've chosen to take my money and my time and my efforts and whatever for this because this is what I love. I love to make much of God. I love that in the lives, and that's what your lost friends, they don't believe in Christ because you say that you're a Christian. They begin to believe in Jesus Christ because you show them that there's something supremely more valuable than all the things they think are the most valuable things in this world. Now, here's a question, and I'm going to give you two just a final question, real quick Is it right for God to glorify Himself? I mean, is it right for him to go? Because here's the bottom line. When I first began to kind of study in this area several years ago, I used to begin to sit there and say, well, that's kind of big headed. I mean, here's God and he creates all things. The heavens are declaring his glory, right? Then he creates us to live and to bear his image, to glorify him and to show how great he is. He even sends his son to die. Do you know why? So that you and I can look exactly like his son because his son looks exactly like him. Okay, it's like me. Basically, I mean, can I sit there and say, "Hey, listen, I'm going to have a lot of children uh, because I want them to glorify me and tell me how great I am," and I want to be able to have a lot of children so when they look like me, they can glorify me and it reminds me of how great that I am. Now, if you've seen our children, thank Jesus, they don't look anything like their daddy, right? So that wouldn't really work for for me. But are are y'all tracking? Y'all catching with me right here? So 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 the idea is this. Is for me it's wrong, but for God it's right. Why? For me it's idolatry. If God does not exalt himself in everything, he becomes an idolater. Because he is able to recognize the supreme value of that over all things. And what is that? Himself. So he has the right. To bring all the glory and the praise and the honor to him. Because if he was to do it with anything else, he would commit idolatry. And he doesn't break his first commandment. You should have no other gods before you. And God says, okay, I won't. Now I know because we are often in the flesh. We sit back and we say, yeah, but what is this about me? What does it say about me? And I'm sorry, it does say something immensely important and valuable to you. Immensely. I shared with our with our group that meets on on Sunday nights about in the systematic theology, a book by Tim Keller called "The King's Cross." When we were talking about the Trinity, and and he brings out this idea. He says it's interesting that that the authors of the Bible choose God moving the men in the Bible, choose to make reference to the Holy Spirit's existence in the beginning of the creation in Genesis 1, and then it's at its recreation in Mark 1, when Jesus comes on the scene to redeem the world. And there we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in creation, and we see Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Jesus speaking, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. There is Jesus himself, and the Holy Spirit comes down and descends on him like a dove. He says, why is that? And he says, because God is constantly doing everything he can to remind you and I why we exist. And then you sit there and go, well, what does the Trinity have to do with it? He says, well, the Trinity is made up of three persons, one God, one God and three persons. They are not more one God than they are three, and they're not more three, three gods than they are one. They are or more three persons than one God. I don't want to get, become a hypocrite there <laughs> unintentionally. But what they do is he says from eternity's past the father or the, the spirit has done nothing but to worship and to glorify the son the son has done nothing but tried to serve and to glorify the father and the father has done the same for the rest so he does what C.S. Lewis calls the dance In the Godhead, there's this perpetual dance going on with the Godhead. They're all dancing around each other, never demanding to be the center of that attention, but rather sitting there and worshiping one another freely and unconditionally from eternity's past. And they sit there and say, well, listen, so from eternity's past, God, through that relationship, has experienced eternal joy. Then he poses this question. Then why did God create you and me? It wasn't To bring him joy. It was so that God would be glorified to give us joy. When he created man and woman in the garden, this is what he said You guys need to dance around me. As long as you dance around me, you will be fulfilled you will be fully satisfied. You will experience life at its fullest. If you will do the will of your heavenly Father, you will experience the greatest sense of joy. But if you eat of the tree that I've commanded you not to do, it is all, you're going to lose it. You will lose your joy. You will lose your health. You will lose your everlasting life. You will physically die. You will spiritually die. And you will not be happy And here's the bottom line. Would every one of us admit that truly when we pursue the flesh in our own glory and stop glorifying him, that you and I are most to be pitied and miserable? Yes. Yes. So he says, you want to be joyful? I created you to revolve around me, not me to revolve around you. That's a life worth living Doing the will of God for the glory of God. If John Piper says God is most glorified when we're most satisfied with Him, then we should be able to turn that as well and say, We are most satisfied when God is most glorified in us. And next week we're to find why this is so important. This drives missions. Because we want God to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. Why? Because he is infinitely superior above everyone else in all things. Jesus, we come to you right now. And there are those who are here who need to be saved. God, truthfully in their life right now, what they would say is that, God, they have been pursuing.